from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Hoda Mahmoudi on January 16, 2017. Hoda has held a number of positions in academia, including Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Northeastern Illinois University and Vice President and Dean of Olivet College. She describes her work in the aftermath of the racial incident at Olivet College that hit the news in 1992 to help avoid such incidents from occurring again. Hoda is now head of the Baha'i Chair for World Peace at the University of Maryland. She describes for us what a university chair is and what is the mission of the Baha'i Chair for World Peace. I started the interview by asking Hoda where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. That's a very interesting question because for the first 10 years of my life, I lived in Iran, in Tehran, and then after 10, I grew up for 35 years in Utah. Very different. <laughs> very different. <laughs> very, very different. I'd like you to describe, if you can remember, the cultural sure. shift that you experienced of as course. a result. We came as a family, so it was my older brother and sister, and then my parents and I, we moved from Iran to Logan, Utah, which was a very small town. And the reason for that move was that my father wanted to leave Iran to have better educational opportunities, especially for his two daughters, but also his son. When we came to uh, Logan, Utah, it was really interesting because we were excited about coming to the U.S., but then we came into a culture which was really quite different. I mean, it was a predominantly Mormon culture in Logan, Utah. Logan at that time was a town of about 7,000, and it had a very, and still does, a very good land-grant university, Utah State University. You know, the university had some international students and, of course, even a diversity of students who were American, but the town itself was predominantly Mormons. I think we were probably just as shocking to the <laughs> Mormons as they were to us in terms of customs and differences and cultural differences or norms. But what was really helpful was my parents sat us down and said, we are in a new country, we are in a new place with people who may not do things exactly the way we knew them in Iran. And it is really good for us to learn about what these people do and to be comfortable with this surrounding. I remember they pretty much opened their doors and invited all kinds of people to come and sit around our table and have dinner with us. For me, that was extremely important because it opened up the environment that we were in to us and got us into a process of learning 
about this new world that we had come into. Now, that's one side of it. The other side is that it was also difficult. And I'll personalize it a little bit that, you know, here I am. I don't speak English. My second language was French at the time because we went to a French school in Iran. I was not put in an English as a second language class. I was just, I remember we arrived in May of 1959. And in end of August, I was told that you're going to go into fifth grade and you will learn English. You'll pick it up. So that was rather frightening for me <laughs> to mm -hmm. go to school and really not know the language as well as I should. And then I think there was always this feeling. I don't think necessarily it was imposed. I mean, I, I was too young to really know, but there was this feeling that I'm not quite the same as these people in this classroom, you know. And I do think I stood out. I mean, my name was really different and hard for them to pronounce. And when the teacher had me introduce myself the first day, I was really frightened of the thought of doing that. And will that will I be understood, you know, and then he said, where are you from? And I said, Iran. And he looked at the class and he says, do any of you know where Iran is? And they all, of course, didn't know, which absolutely surprised me because, you know, I thought Americans, they are much more advanced than we from <laughs> Iran, etc. And so he had me go up and show on the map where Iran is. It was just an, an interesting time where you feel like you're a minority. You don't quite know how this is going to work out. So, you know, that was a very interesting experience for me. I think eventually you adjust as well as you can. But I think in some ways you have your feet in two cultures. And I don't just mean the Iranian versus the American but also my family's religion is Baha'i, and I think those were the values that my parents wanted us to always uphold. One says you should embrace all people, that you should not show prejudice towards others, that fellowship with others, camaraderie and acceptance of others is important. And the other one is how will I maneuver through this culture that I don't fully understand. And sometimes I feel somewhat marginalized. How was that? How You were marginalized simply because you were different and therefore folks didn't... Different. Yes, different. And, you know, for the first, I would say, three years, we were in a very steep learning curve, all of us, the entire family. You can imagine that the family dynamics are one where everyone is trying to navigate this new environment. Some know the language better than others. <laughs> Some need help with certain things and others may not know exactly how to help the other one out with that. I don't think it was unique to just my family. I think these are experiences that immigrant populations and immigrant children in particular have. So... Yeah, um, although they might have a larger community in which they may be around, like those who might yes. speak Spanish or, or Mexican may move into an actual fairly large Mexican community, whereas it you're, sounds like... You're, you, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. you're absolutely right about that. I mean, we didn't... You know, I don't think I met another Iranian of my age until I 
probably it was when I was finishing high school. Now, remember, an Iranian my age. That doesn't mean that Iranians didn't come through Utah, didn't live there, but there were very, very few. I mean, I, I think there was maybe, when we got there, I think there weren't more than a handful. And most of them were actually students. So they were single. There was not a family. So yes. you said that your father left, took his family to the United States for educational opportunities. Were the educational opportunities somewhat stifled for his children in Iran? Yes. And also because in Iran, as a member of a minority religion, but more specifically the Baha'i religion, Things were never certain, and by that I mean at that time, and I'm talking about the 50s now, which as a child I can only recall some of the things that were taking place, some of the occurrences. There was always the possibility of persecution. You never knew what form it would take. Would it be that one day a group of individuals would decide to come into neighborhoods where Baha'i lived and cause problems, or whether it would be a government-sanctioned decree or order that take over their national center, tell them not to have regular meetings. You know, you never knew where the persecution would come from. And as a Baha'i child, you were aware of the prejudice that might be expressed by others towards you, especially in school. This was something that families talked to their children about. I mean, I remember when my sister, who's seven years older than me, would go with some of her friends to walk to a, another Baha'i home in the neighborhood that was maybe a 10-minute walk, let's say. And I think that's about right. They were told to be very careful not to stop anywhere else, to go directly to the other home, and then to come back, you know. So there was always a tension about this. I don't want to paint it as a daily occurrence necessarily in our lives, but certainly we had experiences, you know. All I'm saying is that my parents wanted to leave Iran, and it was difficult to just pick up and leave Iran I mean, my father tried, I think, to go to India and then, I believe, to South Africa. But how do you do that? You know, how do you get a visa or leave a country and what do you go to? He was in agriculture economics. That was his field. And he was quite influential in introducing a lot of new technology from the West into Iran about agricultural technology, horticulture, animal husbandry, and all the other stuff. On one of his trips to the U.S., where he brought a delegation of Iranian men to tour this country and go to the various prominent universities to learn about what's happening in, and what they're learning in this country about agriculture, he actually went to Utah State University then there was an exchange where Utah State University sent a delegation to Iran, and my father met the president of the university at one of those meetings and told him about his desire to either continue his education or find some way to 
come to the U.S. And the president of the university said, why don't you apply as a graduate student and come and get your master's? And so that's what my father did. And he was 47 years old, which is really quite phenomenal because he pretty much gave up the life of a professional who was doing well in Iran, both educationally and in terms of his job, uprooted a family and came to the U.S. and started to get his master's degree. And then eventually his Ph.D. in sociology from the University of Utah, now in Salt Lake City. And then he was given a faculty position at that university. I mean, it just demonstrates how much he cared about his children to Absolutely. sacrifice what he did. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I haven't mentioned my mother because she, too, was had a very comfortable life in Iran. You know, I mean, her family was there. My mother was very unique and very brave because she was a Muslim when she first married my father. After five years of marriage and after an extensive, her own study of the Baha'i religion, where she would read the books and try to figure out what this religion is. And at times she would tell me that I was aware of some of the prejudices against Baha'is. So I read these books to find out what they say about those negative aspects that are publicized in Iran sometimes about Baha'is. And she said, I just couldn't find anything but very wonderful principles, but also a, an amazing vision of working to transform oneself and to transform society by a set of very important principles grounded in spiritual values, and by serving humanity in order to improve the condition and plight of everyone. And so after five years, she became a Baha'i. And I don't want to go into too much detail, but you know, it was not easy for a woman, especially, because women in Iran and women in the world in general don't have equal status with men. It was not easy to make that decision to become a Baha'i, because now you're going from a majority religion to a minority. And I think she suffered because of that. Those who were close to her didn't fully understand why she would do that and were not happy that their sister or their daughter made that decision. And so when we came to the U.S., I think my mother's boldness became more apparent in that she didn't know a word of English when we came here. She started taking English classes with public librarian, head of the public library at Logan, Utah. Then learned to drive and really became such an independent woman and a very grounded woman as a Baha'i, if I may say that. And by that, I mean, she knew that She's in this foreign land for her, you know, very foreign place. She had to learn how to even cook what she knew how to cook in a country and in a place where maybe all the spices weren't there and, mm. you know, maybe right. everything wasn't readily available in 1959. It may be now in a globalized world, but not then. You know, she opened her house up invited all kinds of people and was a perfect hostess and a perfect model, I think, of 
a woman who is independent, who trusts her own judgment to do what is right, and then begins to do that through these actions of reaching out to other people in an environment that was very different for her. Hoda, what did you study at university? Psychology, basically. I mean, I was interested in biology and I was interested in pre-med, but I soon realized that's really not where I want to be. And so I went into psychology, did my master's in counseling psychology, and then my PhD is in sociology. And all of these degrees were from the University of Utah because good immigrant children stay close to home. (laughs) (laughs) Was that an obligation on your part or your desire on your part? It was a semi-obligation. So I think if I pushed hard enough, maybe would have let me go elsewhere. But it was really thought that it would be best that I stay in Utah. Did you go right into academia after you had completed your university studies? I did, yes. Mm-hmm. Immediately after I got my PhD, I got my first position actually at Westminster College in Salt Lake City, Utah, a very good liberal arts college that's doing very well to this day. Then I moved around. Did you eventually go to Olivet College? Olivet College in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And you were the vice president and dean? Yes. And what I found out was that you were instrumental in something called institutional oh. transformation at yes. Olivet yes. College. Actually, Olivet College was a very interesting experience. I went there because one of my colleagues was already there as in the capacity first as a dean and then he became president and then I went. He invited me to go there to help transform this institution, which in 1992, and the story is written up in the New York Times, there was a racial incident which led to a very ugly conflict on campus among students. Olivet College was really ready to be shut down because it was just not doing well after that. I won't go into all the details, but so a new administration came in to try to revive this college, which was a very significant college. Olivet College is a sister institution to Oberlin College in Ohio, found by the Congregational Church. These two institutions and others, very important because Olivet College was founded in 1844. It allowed women, African Americans to attend at that time. And it just was a leading institution in terms of what higher education at its best should be. So in 1996, when I went to Olivet, we had a chance to recreate this institution in a way that reflected some of the needs of the current generation of college students and also to be true to the legacy of Olivet. The institution applied to Kellogg for a grant to revive its liberal arts requirements, and Kellogg gave us a a very good, I think it was close to a million dollars to do this. 
And so the curriculum was very interesting. By interesting, I mean there was a framework. It was coherent. Everything related to something else that needed to take place in order for the end result, when the day the student graduates, that they would have a very well-rounded education and that they could show their prospective employer what they had achieved. And by that I mean now it's common language, but the center was on student. What are students learning rather than what are teachers teaching? So the focus was placed on student learning. And then every class, every syllabus or the requirements of the class would have to be measured. So if we say that we're going to teach them to write good essays, let's show what essays at the end of the semester they were able to write. You know, if we say they have math proficiency, let's prove that they have math proficiency. So it was an outcomes, learning outcomes orientation. And also very creative. We had learning communities where you had an anthropologist, maybe psychologist, and maybe someone from the sciences teach a course together where you combine the culture, but also the individual response to, as well as the scientific environment in which something takes place. Or you have a teacher who's in theater come into this configuration, and so you have students act out certain things about what history of science might have looked like. What does that look like if you presented it in a play? It was a very creative way of having students learn the various components of not only anthropological understanding, but as I said, scientific, psychological, sociological, whatever it might be, literary, I mean, the, the books you assign, all of that. Also at Olivet, in a very short time, realized that we have to really balance the student body because, you know, it's in rural Michigan, but also... It had this legacy of allowing African-Americans to be there. So we reached out to Chicago high schools and wanted to bring students of color and from different backgrounds. And we wanted to increase the number of faculty of color because there were hardly any. So combined with the curricular changes and what was happening with the student body and faculty, there was a transformation that took place at Olivet that was very interesting and very important to a liberal arts college that was founded on the basis of providing an education to everyone. And, of course, we added another dimension to it, which wasn't there in the 1800s, and that was to bring in international students as well. So it was, a, it was a very good experience for me because, and I'm not exaggerating this, if you read about academic initiatives today, and, you know, 1996, and this here we are in 2017, it's been a few 20 years, years in yeah. between, yes, the things that we talked about then are now being spoken of in terms of, well, we have finally implemented 
this, you know, and this might be, we have now moved from teacher-centered to student-centered institution. And I'm not saying this in a negative way at all. I'm simply saying it because I think it's interesting that some of these ideas take so long to take hold, you know, and it just teaches you what change is all about, you know. If you want to bring about change, it's not always easy. But that was a very good experience for me because it really allowed me to envision how we can actually bring diversity. You know, diversity is a very loaded term, but by that I mean when you are in an educational institution, especially higher learning, it is so important to have students exposed not only to ideas that are diverse, but to people who are diverse. And by that, I don't just mean racial and gender and all these usual characteristics, but it's also that when you have diversity of ideas, it forces you to think. You can't just say, well, my teacher said this, so obviously it must be that. It forces you, well, what do I believe? Where do I stand on these various issues? How do I think of this concept or that theory or this idea? And I think when you have people who come from different experiences and backgrounds, you just have a far more richer education and a far more greater understanding. That's one part of it. But the other part is that we live in a country where literally all kinds of people from all over the world live here. And not just all over the world, but we have had, unfortunately, through slavery, African Americans who live here. We have Latinos, we have Asians, and on and on. So why wouldn't we want institutions to represent what this country is about? Again, the importance of that is because if we live in a country with this variety of people, then it's important that we understand that diversity. And by understand, I really mean that we know the histories, the context of those histories, and what transpired. Because I think that prepares students to face not only the challenges that this country has in order to improve upon those challenges, but also a changing world. So all of that for me was a very important experience in that I think I learned probably more than the students because, mm -hmm. you know, we were in a rural setting in Michigan. Most of the rural communities were predominantly white. And we brought in a large African-American, some Latino students, and then also with the faculty, we did the same. There were many, many challenges, as you can imagine, to make sure that things ran smoothly from day to day. But, you know, if you concentrate on something, put your mind to it, and really do good planning, a lot can be done. The college was recognized for these initiatives by various higher education organizations. You had written an essay, and I don't know when you had written it, titled Altruism and Extensivity in the Baha'i mm -hmm. Religion. 
when did you write that? Yeah. And maybe you can explain what that the was. Premise was. Oh, that was 1989, I believe. A colleague of mine, Miss Wendy Heller, she got her degree at Berkeley and she's a literary person. She's one of the best editors I know in this world. Anyway, she and I were invited by a professor at Humboldt State University in California to join a group of academics and to go to Warsaw, Poland. And each of us was to present a paper dealing with altruism and extensivity. In other words, what have we learned about people who are willing to risk their lives at one extreme to save the lives of others, like we experienced in the Holocaust, where non-Jews hid Jews or did things to save Jews from being exterminated. What else have we learned about especially children who are altruistic and extend themselves to people who are not like them? It was kind of a, if you will, a seminar of about, I believe there were 40-some of us, it wasn't huge, to then present our papers and have discussions about what we're learning. And they asked us, Sam Oliner and actually his wife Pearl, asked us, Wendy and I, to give the Baha'i perspective about the subject matter. We agreed to do so, and so we wrote a paper about it. You know, it's very hard because we couldn't go around the world and say, well, who's being altruistic or not? But we looked at Baha'i principles, in essence, regarding principles that we have in the Baha'i community or in the Baha'i religion that might address this matter of altruism and extensivity. So it was a, a very important conference. Actually, we were around the table at that seminar with many Holocaust survivors, including Sam Oliner, who was the leading sociologist who organized the event. So that's what the paper was about. Mm. Do you remember any of the Baha'i principles that were related to altruism and extensivity by any chance? I think a starting point for us was to look at the Baha'i worldview, it's the notion that all human beings are simply human beings. I don't know how else to put it. Mm. That sounds really simple, but that we are human beings on this planet and we are really all part of this single species called human beings that we have differences of curly hair and straight hair and this shaped nose and that shaped eyes and skin color and this and that. All of those things are fine and wonderful. They're great. And they should be viewed as that because we are all human beings. So in the Baha'i terminology, this is called the oneness of humankind. And it really, at its core, says that if you are one species, there cannot be prejudice against your own species. It doesn't make sense to separate one group based on, I don't know, class or religion or race or gender. I mean, that just simply doesn't make sense. We started from that premise that 
what does it mean to raise children with this principle that all human beings are to be respected, all human beings are to be treated with dignity. So we thought that was really important because the thing about extensivity, the question that academics raise is what does it take to raise a group of children to be comfortable with people who are not just like they are or like their parents or like their extended family or like their particular religion, whatever. So what is it that allows children to reach out to people who are not like them? And it's interesting, some of the research, now I'm drawing here from my memory, but some of the research indicates that parents of these altruistic children socialized with all kinds of people and never made any distinction between them. You know, oh, tonight we're going to invite the Catholics over. Tomorrow night we're going to invite the Jews over. Or the, they just invited people over. Or we're going to have African Americans over. No, they just had all kinds of people that were not necessarily the same as they were come in and out of the house with no previous lecture or preparation about to happen. There was this seamless interaction with all kinds of people. Also, of course, the issue of the values that the children are instilled with in relation to how you treat people, and this is regardless of who they are, how we should treat people regardless of who they are. So that was one issue that I think from the Baha'i perspective we felt was very important. I'm really interested in what it would take to raise a generation of children to have as little prejudice as possible. This is an aspect of that. What would it take? And I I mean, this is something that we'll have to work on for a while and try to answer that question through further research and understanding. But so that was the first thing. The other thing that we discussed that I just remembered was Extensivity and altruism is, again, that you regard and respect for others, but you're also willing to sometimes, not just purely out of self-interest, reach out to others and make sure that they are represented, acknowledged, and accepted as a part of the community. So one of the Baha'i principles has to do with our voting system. Baha'is have a very democratic process of voting. We don't electioneer, we don't nominate, but what we do is in any community of nine or more individuals that are of adult age, they come together once a year and vote nine people to represent their community as a council. We call them local spiritual assemblies, but they're like a local council that makes sure that the community is thriving, is happy, is prosperous, and taking care of the education of the children, making sure the elderly are okay, making sure that all members are functioning well, and that their spiritual well-being is tended to above everything else. So this voting is 
secret ballot. No one should ever speak up. In fact, we're told not to vote for people who seem ostentatious, but the ones who are serving quietly, who are of a trained mind, are well versed in the Baha'i tenets and all that. So when you vote, if there is a tie vote, typically you revote. You have people vote again. But if the tie vote includes one person who is of a minority group, then automatically you give that position to the minority. So you say, well, minority, you know, the Baha'i religion is all over the world. It's in Africa, it's in India, and it's Asia, it's in Middle East, in the West, South America, etc. So what does minority mean? In which country? Well, every country has a national council as well, a Baha'i National Spiritual Assembly, that decides what minority means in that country. So, for example, in the U.S., obviously, I haven't checked it recently, but I would imagine the National Assembly has decided that African Americans, perhaps Latinos, it is decided, it is defined by the National Assembly so you have two people who have tied, and one is a majority group, one is not. The person in the majority group as a Baha'i knows that this tie needs to be broken by giving it to the minority. So this, to me, is an aspect of altruism and extensivity. You're now in charge of the, and I'm not sure what your position is, and maybe you can clarify this, there's the Baha'i Chair for World Peace at the University mm -hmm. of Maryland. Maybe you could explain if you're the chair or the Baha'i Chair is an sure. institution. Sure. If you could explain yeah. that to us, yeah. I'm a research professor, and I head up the Baha'i Chair for World Peace, which is an endowed academic chair. It's been there since about 1993. Just to explain, a chair at a university... It's a prestigious thing because what it is, is the university acknowledges that this program and what it intends to do in terms of education is important enough that they actually dedicate a chair to just concentrate on that. So you have, for example, chairs, let's say I'm going to make up a name, the Nancy Smith Chair for Brain Behavior Initiative, okay? So that chair becomes extremely important because it's been given a focus for education and research. Whereas if you are in a department, you know, you're teaching classes and that's important, but it doesn't have that focus that these particular chairs have. So since 2012, I've been the holder, as they say, of the Baha'i Chair for World Peace. What kind of research does the okay. uh, Baha'i Chair do? So the Baha'i Chair is actually interested in exploring what are the barriers in this world that prevent us from having a more peaceful society? What gets in the way of us having a more peaceful society? Through scholarly research and knowledge that's gleaned from that research, 
how could we begin to find solutions to remove these obstacles? So the Baha'i Chair has developed a program which it can't look at everything all at once, but there are some themes, some programmatic themes that we have selected. And these are structural racism and the root causes of prejudice, the empowerment of women and peace, human nature. We're very interested in understanding how is it that human beings can be such wonderful and forward-thinking people who do amazing things such as finding cure to cancer, putting people into space, finding ways to make food production more efficient, all the good things that we do. And then in the same way, what is it that causes us to become so, if I may use the word evil, that we are willing to actually physically bring harm on another person and justify that it's okay. That's a key one that human nature that we are very interested in exploring. And then the others are the environment, how the environment is changing in a globalizing world and how important it is that we understand better the natural resources, nature, human beings are a part of this world. They're not separate from this world. And therefore, what can we do about this consumerism and consumption that degradates the environment? And then the other one is frontiers of globalization and governance. What is happening in the world? Are nations in more conflict with each other? Are leaders the same, or is there hope that leaders will come together, that nations will work together and try to remedy some of the major problems that we face throughout the world, this whole area of the world and governance of the world and what's happening to that is another area we're very interested in. For these themes, what we do is we invite scholars and we hold either lectures, conferences, symposias, for people to come and talk about what they are finding out, about ways to find solutions to these problems, or to raise more questions. You know, sometimes solutions don't come by so easily. So some of them raise some very profound questions and say what their research has led them to. In other words, the Baha'i chair is really in a learning mode. Once we have enough speakers who have given lectures, we try to collect those lectures and get them prepared for publication in an edited volume by some academic press so that we can disseminate this knowledge to others. We also teach a course. I teach a class, an honor seminar on the problem of prejudice, where we examine nationalism, racism, classism, all of the prejudices that we face. Why is that the case? What can we do about it? What should we do on the campus at University of Maryland? You know, it's a very, very wonderful class. And I say that because the students are just so engaged and creative. All of them at the end of the course have to develop an anti-prejudice project. Their capacity to come up with brilliant ideas to 
find ways to teach others why anti-prejudice is important, why we need to get rid of some of, and if not all of our prejudices. They do a fantastic job. So the program is about teaching, about inviting scholars to explore what does peace mean, because it is such a complex topic, and of course more complex because the Baha'i chair looks at peace as a fully inclusive process. It's an integrative approach to peace. So when we talk about the environment, it considers the whole world. When we talk about empowerment of women, it's not just America. It's everywhere. We want to know not only in America what's happening and what we should be doing. That's important. But also, we need to understand our neighbors outside of our country. And then it also sometimes invites visiting scholars who are interested in this integrative or inclusive approach to peace to come and conduct their research as well and then publish their work. The title of your inaugural chair address is Mm -hmm. Vision and Prospects for World Peace. Was that your agenda heading the chair and can you tell us what your vision and prospects for peace yeah i actually gave a little historical context about why the baha'i chair for world peace what does baha'i have to do with world peace and so the context was that as far back as the founding of the baha'i religion and its founder baha'u'llah he actually wrote to the kings and rulers at that time actually proclaiming, telling them that we now need to establish peace. The time has come because the world has become smaller, people are more interdependent, and therefore the rulers or leaders who have the capacity to make a huge difference in terms of bringing about peace must come together and really discuss together in a very serious, in-depth manner as to how they can agree on laws and ordinances that can make this world run better. Because now we have nations and we have to learn how to live in a world peacefully as nations rather than having nations confront each other. So he wrote to these leaders in very detailed language, in fact, pointing out to them how could a leader not want the best, the very best for their subjects? How could they not want to spend all the wealth that they accrue on their subjects rather than building palaces or having a better life for themselves? He very carefully defined the role of leaders. And then after him, he designated his son, oldest son, as the head of the Baha'i faith, whose name was Abdu'l-Baha. He actually wrote a letter to, at that time, it was The Hague where this conference, a peace conference, was taking place. He wrote a very interesting letter in which he outlined the entire blueprint that the Baha'i religion has 
for peace. Again, as I explained it earlier, it's an inclusive piece. It looks at the entire planet and what needs to happen. So I gave that context, the historical context of why Baha'i and why peace. I mean, the purpose of the religion entirely is to bring about peace. It's not just a platitude. It's not just wishful thinking. It's hard, disciplined work that's outlined in the Baha'i principles. I spoke about that, but then I also spoke about how the world is constantly changing and how we have to be aware of these changes and find ways to draw the positive from what's happening in the world, but also to be cognizant of the negative. So we are a globalizing world, no question about it. We are economically, I think, is the first arena where we became totally global, and there's no way out of this. But is globalization all good? No. Should we globalize for peace or should we globalize for war? You know, these are very difficult questions. But these are the kinds of questions that I think the Baha'i chair has to address. So in my inaugural, I brought up these issues. I brought up the issue of cosmopolitan worldview, where there are now academics who say that cosmopolitans are those people who, although they belong to a nation and they're loyal to that nation, they also feel like they belong to the peoples of the world, that they have an affinity with the other people in the world. They refer to it sometimes as a world citizen, but I just call it that we have this affinity with other people, that we are all, again, people. And so how can we benefit from this cosmopolitanism without having to label it as something bad or good, but that this is the reality of the kind of world we live in where Technology has instantly connected us with just virtually any part of this world that we want to be in and communicating with the people in that part of the world. It was that, and it was also the fact that this chair has to create a classroom environment where students, rather than hearing a lecture, come together having read all the academic materials and books But in classroom, they sit and they, through a dialogic process, begin to explore issues and problems and how we might approach solutions. So those were some of, I would say, the key elements of the inaugural. So Hoda, I want to thank you for sharing your life and your work with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Hoda Mahmoudi, head of the Baha'i Chair for World Peace at the University of Maryland. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.